we thank you, dear Jesus, that you have prepared our hearts to receive your holy and perfect word that has cut through the cloud of our sin and spoken to us for all that can truly say in this place, Jesus Christ is my Savior and Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you have gone before and that you have tilled our hearts to receive, God, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You have opened blind eyes to see. You have unstopped deaf ears to hear. You have awakened dead minds to comprehend your scriptures in this place. We ask you this morning as we open up your holy word that you would give us further understanding that we might add to our faith, Lord, the virtues and the godliness and the elements of Christ-likeness and obedience that are becoming of us as believers to further glorify your name. We pray that we would be hearers and doers of your word this day by your Spirit's use of this service and of these means. We pray, Lord, that you would open up any blind eyes who have not yet seen Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life this day, Father, through the proclamation of your word. We acknowledge it is entirely your Spirit's work. Lord, though you use us and it's a privilege that you do, ultimately and only, you get the glory for everything that you have prepared in advance for us to walk in and what you have prepared in advance for this service. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a glorious privilege. What a gift and great opportunity it is for us to open up the Scriptures and to share in them together. Turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 23. And let's continue in our Matthew series. And we will cover three of the seven woes that are delivered to the scribes and Pharisees in this judgment section of the Gospel. The verses that we will pay closest attention to this morning are verses 13 through 22 of Matthew 23. The title of this morning's message is Woe to You. That word woe, we will provide some background and some context, but in short, it's a calling or it's an announcement, a proclamation of judgment. Beware. Pay attention. There is something ominous for you in your future in the proclamation of what follows that word is the idea. The to you, who are these woes addressed to, are the hard-hearted Pharisees. I'll remind you, which was our, my appeal last week, that these words are not for others, though they are, they're for us as well. When we look at the sections of Scripture that have the cutting rebukes and speak directly to the hard heart as represented by scribes and Pharisees in this section, pay close attention and remember that those who are sinners in Scripture that the Scriptures themselves address are representative sinners. That is, God has sovereignly recorded these things because we need to hear them. We're every bit as much to, uh, prone to wander into the same types of pitfalls, failures, besetting areas of sin as the scribes and the Pharisees were. With that introduction, I would invite you, please stand with me this morning. Let us read these Scriptures together. Follow me as I declare God's holy and infallible word as it's found in Matthew 23, verse 13 through 22. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Verse 6. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if he swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, verse 18, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And verse 22, whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Briefly in review of our introduction to this section, which is found in Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12, which I identified as something of a prologue for this section of woes. Within that section, we have the fundamental and root error that is most prevalently on display among the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And in a word, that error was hypocrisy. That horrific sin that Jesus so pointedly called out in His ministry, spared and minced no words to address. And you can even see His righteous indignation stirred in these sections to a degree we sometimes don't see in other altercations or confrontations. But here, hypocrisy is this root and fundamental error that is worthy of such direct words. The idea of hypocrisy has associations in the original context, culture, language of acting in a play. A hypocrite in the Greek, if you use their word, it could also mean someone who plays a role, takes a mask, and pretends to be something or someone that he's not as you might have in a screenplay or some theatrical event. That's the idea in one sense. However, the most accurate description of the sinful basis or foundation or the intrinsic error, the transgression of God's law that hypocrisy uh, represents is given to us in that prologue section before the woes in verse 3. Jesus says, So practice and observe whatever they tell you but not what they do. And then this sentence, for they preach, but do not practice. In a phrase, they preach, but do not practice, is the definition and the essence of hypocrisy. The made, or the they, that is the scribes and Pharisees, and those like-minded who shared their heart, they made lip service to God. But in reality, in reality, their religious devotion was all about themselves. The reason they went about the things that they did was ultimately to serve themselves and each other, not the glory of Christ. Furthermore, the nature of their crimes was exponentially worse given their influence over others. It's one thing to be a personal hypocrite. It's another thing to lead others intentionally by your actions, by your leadership, into hypocrisy. The wickedness of the scribes and the Pharisees is a sobering reminder 
that no one sins, not you, not me, not a scribe, not a Pharisee, no one sins in a vacuum. We can only and will only underestimate the collateral damage of especially our unconfessed sin. And at this point, the gospel interjects in my mind with a thank you, Lord, a prayer of thanksgiving for the overwhelming power of redemption in Christ's blood. The only thing stronger, that is to say, than the potential damage of a sin like hypocrisy, shutting the door of deception in people's faces that they might not enter the kingdom of God, is the superior work of the Holy Spirit and the superior power of Christ's blood. Our text today, uh, as we seek to understand it, perhaps this, this anecdote might be helpful. Our text today is deadly serious. I was thinking lately about the history of the institutional heavy-handed church. And the abuses of the church acting in error are well documented. And while none of us could ever endorse some of the actions that were taken, picking up the sword and lighting the pyres or lighting the uh, fires of burning at the stake, none of us could ever endorse that kind of thing. It strikes me that something equally shocking and dramatic is promised for every ultimate heretic. There is one related truth that should, be not, that should not be lost on us as we think back of the history of church burning heretics. Today, today we, have, we live in a culture of metastasizing relativism where the, it's such a, a, a horrific thought that you would burn a heretic today because there is no truth. How could you be so arrogant to say he's wrong and deserves to die? Well, I have the right, or well, I have a monopoly on truth or reality. However, that aside, which is a perversion, the seriousness of religious treason that was presupposed in the burning of actual heretics is instructive. All that to say this, our text today proves ultimately that heretics will inevitably burn. But more, far more seriously than any sort of action a wayward church has taken in this life, we are talking eternally. And the fires are lit by the ultimate and ultimately the only judge, Jesus Christ, when those who do not repent get their just dues. And as our texts say today, if they are proven twice or if they go out and about uh, in their hardness of heart, in their unbelief and sin, make others twice a child of hell than themselves, then as a child of the devil or of hell, they will certainly get their inheritance. As verse 33 goes on to say, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape from sentenced to hell, being sentenced to hell? And he goes on to talk about the seriousness of that issue. As each indictment is introduced in Matthew 23 with Christ's proclamation of woe, let us be sobered with the shuddering reality of Christ's words. And at this point, let me swiftly interject. While the weight and the seriousness of this text is meant to hit us in the spiritual gut, as it were, for all of you in Christ, that has a direct, and a, uh, that has a direct intent how is the heaviness of these things supposed to affect us as believers? 
It is to cause that sigh of relief and overwhelming joy of your first love, burden of sin being lifted in Christ Jesus, to be reignited in our soul. As we see again the heinous nature of sin in the Scriptures, let us rejoice in our salvation and in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, as we read these words and we hear the pronunciation of woe, there is a shuddering reality in Christ's words and especially for those who have not repented of their sins and placed faith in Jesus Christ. Our text compels the spiritual equivalent of the response to like a bombing raid siren. I'm sure you've all seen war films. And underneath that dull roar of heavy airplanes overhead, there's that incessant siren repeating over and over. And in the distance, approaching, you hear explosion after explosion. And even though you may never have been in a war-torn city or, fall, or, or been there when carpet bombing campaign is taking place in your community, something of that intensity and fear that you feel when you watch a movie like that or imagine that scenario as you read an account of history, that is something like the word woe or something like what we are to take from the word woe in Scripture. It's an alarm, it's a siren, it's an announcement of certain doom unless there is a way of escape. In the framework this morning of our text today, we find according to patterns in Scripture that this really is a covenant lawsuit against the religious order of Jesus' day. So to help us understand the text as I have read it, let us consider three main points this day under the heading covenant lawsuit characteristics. Let us see the nature and character of what Jesus is saying here as it relates to patterns in Scripture so that we might have a deeper understanding, both to double-check our own hearts and also to proclaim the gospel to others. First major point under covenant lawsuit characteristics is structure. Let us consider the framework and the distinctives and clues within this text and that the rest of the Word of God might supply so that we might have a greater understanding of what's going on here. First of all, under structure, elements of covenant. I read a helpful article, and I'll try to post it on further reading on our website this week. The article was written by John Frame, and he distilled some ideas of basic covenant structure that have been uh, gleaned from scholars of Near East treaties like Meredith Klein and others. And what he helpfully identified is a basic treaty or covenant document in Scripture has about five categories, more or less. And these should be familiar to you. This is a structure or framework I've referenced generally before, but it's helpful to remind ourselves of it because it relates to our text today. First of all, in a covenant document where you have a record of an official relationship, terms and conditions between one party and another, and in this case, God and His people, we have number one, the prologue or the name of the great king. Um, so the, the, it's an announcement of the parties. That would be the preamble, I'm sorry. First of all, the name of the great king would be a summary statement. Who is the ultimate authority? Uh, secondly, there's a historical prologue, which is a record of the relationship between the two parties in view. Thirdly, there are stipulations and laws. That is, requirements in order for this relationship to stay in good standing, thus and so must be followed. Um, four, sanctions. What if those are followed? 
Well, there's blessings that attend the way. There's privileges that can be assured. What if those stipulations are broken? Well, then there's curses involved in the sanctions. And finally, fifth, administration. And that is, speaks to the continuity or what should happen in the event of you know, uh, something happening, a contingency. Well, when we get to that last category, administration, and we know that Jesus Christ is the great king, we can now see that there is a lawsuit brought to bear against those in violation with their covenant with the Lord, namely the religious leaders of Israel at the time, and Jesus is documenting their errors, where they have broken His stipulations, where they have broken His law. And in, our, in my translation, other translations list eight, there's seven woes. So when you hear, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, right there is grievance number one. You might be more familiar with the founding documents of our nation. If you remember the Declaration of Independence, there's a redress or there's an addressing or there's a, uh, a point of accounting or an, an, an attempt to make an accounting for certain grievances. Certain laws, the claim from the colonies was that certain laws were broken by the other party uh, in England. And so those grievances were listed. And, each, and, and then if they weren't addressed correctly, then the implication was we go to war. In a similar way, this document is listed like this. Only the imminent perfection, the amazing power, and the ultimate authority of its author and his power not only to proclaim the truth, but to follow through in judgment if it's not followed, is so infinitely greater than anything in our experience that at that point the analogy breaks down. However, these categories are helpful for us to understand what's going on. Now, John Frame goes on in his article to talk about how these five categories are helpful to understand different ways uh, or different themes in biblical revelation. Much of the Bible declares and expounds the nature and character of God. God's names are a featured theme in the Old Covenant. The works of Jesus and His mighty miracles uh, displaying His glory according to the, in the Gospels, are a major theme in the New Testament. Secondly, the history of the interaction between God and His people is also a major theme. His great works in time and also the record of His people and there with respect to Him. Whether or not they were faithful in keeping their covenants, keeping short accounts with the Lord, embracing His means and following Him in obedience, or if they were in gross and systemic, prolonged rebellion, deserving of judgment, and so on. Also, a great portion of the Bible is given to laws. What does God require? What is justice, righteousness, and truth? And we think of the Old Covenant and even into the New. In fact, Matthew chapter 5 lists stipulations. And then fourthly, sanctions, blessings and cursings, Deuteronomy 28. And uh, fifthly, a category of, of revelation is what does the Lord have to say about the future relationship between Him and His people? He has so much to say. The new covenant is called the new covenant for that reason. The future relationship between God and His people will be reconciled because there will be a covenant keeper who will stand in their stead, namely Jesus Christ, who will intercede on their behalf. And that's the kingdom of God. 
That's the answer. That's the hope. That's the fulfillment. That's the administration, ultimate, glorious, hopeful administration of the covenant that puts us in right standing with Him. So in this context, how horrifically sinful and the apex of hatred, the epitome of cruelty would it be if that very message of Jesus Christ fulfilling the covenant and making a way through repentance and faith with Him, reconciling His people to Himself, was sla- that message was slammed shut by the so-called trusted religious leaders of the day. And now we're starting to get an idea why the, this breach of covenant was so serious. Secondly, under structure, having covered elements of covenant as it generally relates to our text today, Let us consider this word woe in context. In Isaiah chapter 5, you could turn there briefly with me if you would, we are reminded that in the Old Testament, the prophets often delivered covenant lawsuits against particular people, situations, sometimes foreign nations, sometimes God's people directly. In Isaiah chapter 5, this is one of those examples where God's people themselves are called to reckoning by God's voice through the prophet to faithfulness, repentance, and if not judgment, by his agent bringing his word. And we find similar language, Isaiah 5.8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but one ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine, flute, and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands." We can pause there. That's probably enough for you to get the idea. Because there has been a breach in faithfulness, because the people have disregarded God's law, they have served themselves, they have sought lives of uh, privilege and luxury and opulence in caring only about their houses and their own wealth and their inheritance, uh, uh, physically speaking or financially speaking that they have put God's word aside. They have served themselves, which is represented by their lifestyle and behavior, by drunken revelries, entertainment, but not regarding the deeds of the Lord. And according to then Deuteronomy 28, if you do not abide and keep and remember my commandments and my law, what was the promise? What were the sanctions? Curse you will be in your fields. Curse you will be in your relationships Uh, abroad abroad and at home and so on. And so there we see the woe in context. You don't have to turn there, but in Revelation, I'll just read briefly in chapter 9, how bad is a woe or, you know, what what connotations of negativity are we to draw from the use of the term woe in Scripture? Revelation 9 is helpful in that regard. Uh, Verse 1 through 12, this is apocalyptic and prophetic type language imagery to help us realize the intensity of the siren sound of the woe. It says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. And he was given the key 
uh, to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft arose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened, and the smoke from the shaft, then uh, from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, uh, like the power of scorpions of the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass, the earth, the green plant, or the tree, but only those people who who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, if people will seek death and not find it, they will long to die, but death will flee from them. It goes on to describe the horrific circumstances, terrifying, such that death would uh, seem such a desirable option over what the people were enduring under these circumstances. In verse 12, excuse me, this passage then closes with, the first woe has passed, behold, two woes are still to come. Again, woe in context. In in Habakkuk Habakkuk, uh, chapter 2, verses 6 through 20, woes are called out on the enemies of God's people, represented in that passage by the Chaldeans. So here we have it, with his people in Revelation and Isaiah and others, pagans in Habakkuk. We see that uh, this idea of woe is exemplified. And if you wanted a phrase to well describe it, I think the following might do. What is woe uh, in context? It is a foreboding reality uh, based on, na- uh, on the nature of the forecasted situation. And here's maybe the highlightable phrase I gleaned from several lexical sources. A woe is an ominous alarm signaling calamitous divine penalty and judgment. An ominous alarm signaling calamitous divine penalty and judgment. As we read or as we uh, go back over our text in light of some of this context, we can see how serious these words were. We can also see why the response of the scribes and the Pharisees was as negative and dramatic as it was. Really what was happening in this covenant lawsuit was battle lines were being drawn. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Lord of glory, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father until He puts all His enemies under His feet, according to verse 44 of the previous chapter, had a bone to pick with those who were at war with His kingdom. Who is going to win that conflict and how would it unfold? The rest of the gospel chronicles the story. Finally, under structure, there's telling references in context. The first is the biblical word in the Greek, it's Gehenna for hell that appears in the original language. Reading again in our text, chapter 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, but when he comes, becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell, Gehenna, as yourselves. Turning over a page or so, but in the same chapter, verse 32, fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to, again, hell or Gehenna? This word actually comes from the name of an actual valley. Multiple sources, including Easton's Bible Dictionary, were helpful for me. And this is what I found, that a deep and narrow glen south of Jerusalem 
was a place historically in national Israel where the children of the idolatrous Jews at different times in their sordid and idolatrous past were offered to Molech, the false god. 2 Chronicles 28.3, 2 Chronicles 33.6, Jeremiah 7.31, also 19.2-6 are some passages that, get, or that account, give an accounting of this era in Israel's history. Now, after this horrific practice, the worst of, 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 this, uh, of social ills and evils you can possibly imagine, where parents willfully offer up their children as sacrifices to be burned before this false god, after the light of God's truth was shined on this practice, and it became abhorrent, and Israel repented of it, then afterwards this valley became a place of curse, and a, a byword, and an area that became a, a geographical area that was relegated to a place of horrific memory, and became a common receptacle for all kinds of refuse. Because of the associations of that area with this pagan practice, the Jews figured the best they could do is to turn it into a dump. So here, dead bodies of animals and criminals and all sorts of unclean refuse, according to the law, was dumped there. And to keep the odor and the stench bearable, continuous fires were kept burning in that area. Now this is just an illustration, mind you. It's just a picture. But it is what is employed and what is used in context when the Bible employs the term Gehenna to describe the nature of eternal conscious torment and judgment that is worthy of our sin. That's a telling reference in context. When Christ employed that term Gehenna, it would immediately bring all of those associations into the mind of the Jew that heard it. And so it did. Also in context, there is a passing reference, an implied reference to departing or departed glory. And this is important because it will figure in to the context later as we move forward. Notice in verse 20, as Jesus is commenting on the, uh, the distinctions, the false distinctions that the religious leaders were making by what you should swear by and not swear by what he says in verse 20. So, whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. Verse 21, and whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. I have a question for you. At this time in redemptive history, did God dwell in that temple that the Pharisees and the Sadducees so revered and that was so central to all their religious order and all the convoluted and complicated uh, traditions that they had invented? All of their appeals to the temple and the appeals to doing this and that, the altar and the gold in the temple and so on. Well, I'm telling you that according to Ezekiel 10, which prophetically documents this momentous time in redemptive history where the glory of the Lord actually left the temple, what they were pointing to was empty. The glory of God had left the temple. So part of the weight of this text is understood in the context of the rest of Scripture. All your focus 
is on some other source of glory. You should be crying on your knees in repentance because of your wickedness. The glory of God has left this place. It's not here anymore. When would the glory return? Every faithful Jew, that should have been the burning question on their mind. When will hope return? We're in the Ezekiel 10 state right now. This indefinite state of lostness, wandering around without the assurance of of fellowship, reconciliation, and communion with God. When will the glory return? They were speaking to the glory Himself. Jesus Christ was the glory of God returning. John chapter 1 says, He came and tabernacled, dwelt among us. In the original language, and when Jesus says, there's coming a day even now, it's upon us, the kingdom of God, where you won't worship on this mountain or that mountain. Why? Because the glory had returned in Christ. Now you can see how the door of the kingdom was slammed shut when the religious leaders falsely used their authority to say, this man is a blasphemer, swear by that temple. Totally reversed. Here is the glory of God, and they called him a blasphemer. Here is the empty temple due to God's judgment, and they say that's where your hope resides. This is the situation to which Christ is addressing when he says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. The third reference, telling reference in context, is again a reference to authority and seat in verse 22. Whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits upon it. And Jesus, again, is using this authority, sitting, seat of authority, as a theme through this entire discourse. I will recall to your attention verse 2. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. They are culpable and failed in their authority. They're not sufficiently seated on Moses' seat because they are hypocrites. There is inconsistency. But there was one who is never unseated and is never inconsistent with his established throne of authority. Who is that one? Christ is already revealed for those with ears to hear in chapter 22, reminding us again of a previous message, verse 44. The Lord said... To my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The throne of God and the right hand seat of authority was Jesus Christ for the taking. He was in the process of putting his enemies, namely death, hell, and all of the judgment deserving of his people under his feet as he was going to Calvary. And even now as he spoke, he spoke as God in flesh, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, the seat of authority, ultimately speaking, that could correct all lesser ones and had the uh, right and obligation and, and perfectly followed the duty to adjudicate a lawsuit correctly was in the hands of Christ, and that is what he is doing in Matthew 23. Second major point this morning, covenant lawsuit characteristics. Not only do we see in the structure elements of covenant, 
woe in context, telling references. But we also see in the three grievances themselves important things to understand. What were the three grievances? We have them uh, following the three woes in verse 13, verse 15, verse 16 through 22. I've summarized them with the following phrases. The three grievances, number one, censoring the gospel. Number two, false converts. And number three, abuse of the word of God. In summary, these were the great sins, the first three, that Jesus Christ was calling the Pharisees and the Sadducees to account for. Again, from our text, verse 13. But woe to you. Remember that term woe? Hear this alarm and siren signaling divine penalty and judgment, calamity. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. The Pharisees were censoring, these hypocrites were censoring the gospel. That is, they were shutting the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. How were they doing this? I submit to you, primarily, they were preaching a message void of repentance, and they refused to hear the message of repentance themselves. Go back with me to chapter 3 of Matthew's account, and let us hear how the kingdom is introduced. If you look for the point of entry, the door to the kingdom, how might I enter? Where is it introduced? We go back to two references in Scripture, one in the words of John the Baptist, the second in Christ. In chapter 3, verse 1, we have one of them. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. This was his message. You remember verse 2, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let me, John the Baptist says, introduce you to the kingdom of heaven. Instead of slamming the door in your face, let me open the door. The door to the kingdom of heaven is opened through repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. How do we prepare the way to the kingdom of God? How is the way made straight, entrance into fellowship, communion with Him? It's through repentance, the first words, as it were, out of the mouth of John the Baptist in his kingdom ministry. Later, the echo is picked up by Jesus Christ Himself. Turn with me a little later on, and we can see this clearly in the text in uh, chapter 4, verse 17. First of all, a bit of the context, Jesus is uh, uh, walking through these outlying regions, fulfilling prophecy, and this is the beginning of his ministry. And then we have in verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message of entrance to the kingdom of heaven was repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 10, as you recall, Jesus describes himself as the door. Jesus is the point of entry, the exclusive narrow gate, if you will, into the kingdom of heaven. He says that anyone who would preach otherwise is a thief and a robber, 
or anyone who would try to enter another way is out of order and worthy of judgment and is an enemy of his, not a friend. Truly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. If you are his sheep today, brothers and sisters, the first words you heard from your shepherd, Jesus Christ, were repent of your sins and believe in my power to redeem you. Believe in my blood for the redemption of your sins. That is the voice of the good shepherd. The Pharisees refused to hear it. They stopped their ears like a petulant toddler, and they yelled at the top of their lungs nonsensical sayings, as maybe some of you have done in prior years in temper tantrums or senior children do. That was the moral equivalent of the Pharisees' posture when the word of Christ and the door to the kingdom came with the message, repent and believe. Now, as we uh, see later in Jesus' ministry, as he's summarizing the complete and fulfilled gospel, and he's doing so in Luke 24. He has opened the eyes of the two on the road to Emmaus. He has revealed himself, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He has interpreted to them in all the scriptures all things concerning himself. Verse 45 summarizes, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So the message of the door of the kingdom is commissioned to us to give in the Great Commission. We are those now who are called to be not the Pharisees who ignore, despise, or say there might be another way, jump in like a thief or a robber, or are offended at the exclusive claims of Christianity. We are the ones who boldly and compassionately declare there is one way, one truth, and one life. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those who do not do so will one day hear these words, Woe to you, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Second grievance, false converts. Verse 16, you might wonder why verse 15, or I'm sorry, this is verse 15, by verse 14 is skipped it. It's merely because the oldest and perhaps most reliable manuscripts don't include this a phrase, but I'll read it to you anyways. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you, you will receive the greater condemnation. Following that, if that is to be included in the original text, we have verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And this is the grievance I've entitled false converts. The Pharisees were responsible for promoting something, promoting a virgin of, re, uh, of religion, promoting some kind of message. But the question remained, 
What were they converting people to? What were they calling them to join? What were they asking of them and, in, and, and putting upon them by way of influence? A proselyte is a term in the scriptures that refers to a non-Jew that has adopted at least aspects of the Jewish religion. An example of a potential proselyte or uh, uh, someone in that general category might be Cornelius. He himself a Roman centurion, as I recall, but he was sympathetic. He feared the Lord. He understood that there was truth within the, uh, the cultural and the word of God as it was given, delegated to the nation of Israel in their Torah, in their law. And so a proselyte was one who honored the Lord and feared Him. And though they weren't born an ethnic Jew, they would convert to Judaism. And so the Pharisees, they had a high, uh, they, they had motivation and high, a degree of zeal to convert people uh, to, their, to what they believed was sound, their form of Judaism. They went high and low, the scriptures say, across sea and land even for a single proselyte. But the problem was that when they had converted them, they hadn't converted them to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. But instead, they had converted them to self-righteousness. They had converted them to the lie that you can achieve right standing with your own ability and merit. And they had exploited them, they had beaten them down, they had saddled them with heavy burdens, that they themselves are not willing to move with the finger. Their deeds were manifold and their horrific error. Why? Because they didn't know the truth. This raises the stakes for us, does it not, of what is the truth in the first place? What is the gospel? We might be highly motivated to preach our convictions and to convince others of our point of view. But if it is not the point of view of Jesus Christ himself, we are doubly culpable of judgment. In Acts 26, 11, as Paul, who once was Saul, was giving his own testimony, he said that he himself ravaged the church, highly motivated in his pious Judaism, as he understood it, to seek out those in these distant areas and pockets of the so-called way and of the Christians and to root them out and to jail them and to try to quell this uprising that he saw as a rebellion against his culturally understood form of Judaism. Paul and those uh, like him became the initial and most bitter future enemies of the apostles. Praise the Lord, he converted our brother Paul. Paul's zeal, when it was applied to the right to the right message, became one of the most powerful missionary influences in the early church. And this is the power of the gospel in view. But the question remains, what are we most motivated to convince and to convict people of? And this uh, truism or this axiom is also in view. We always sacrifice to our gods. Every man is religious. Everyone is highly motivated. It's just a matter of what is motivating them. The Pharisees and the Sadducees said, look at us. We work harder than anyone. We dress properly. We never go out without our phylacteries tied to our foreheads and to our arms. Our tassels are always prominent and 
and, and, dis, and, and, and impressive in their display. We never go beyond so many steps on a Sabbath day. You'll never catch us so much as eating without unwashed hands. They were highly motivated to worship a false god. And that false god was themselves. Did they seek the praise and the glory of the Almighty? Or did they seek the uh, greetings in the marketplaces? Being called rabbi by others? Or being called teacher? Or being called father? Did they seek to lay down their lives so that Christ might be magnified? Did they exalt Him and humble themselves? Or was it the opposite? Did they go out and tie up heavy burdens, not willing to lift them themselves? And did they lust after the places of honor at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues? That's what they did. They were worshiping themselves. There was a thinly veiled cloak of religiosity over the top of their self-serving ways. This is the hypocrisy that Jesus was calling out. They were not practicing what they were preaching. If they were to practice it, they would repent and cry out to Jesus to forgive them of their sins. As the great Pharisee, one-time Pharisee, Paul actually did. And what a glorious story of repentance and redemption is his. The third major grievance that we're covering this morning, abuse of the word of God. Woe to you, verse 16, blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by an oath. The Pharisees had all these convoluted ideas. And they were telling and teaching people and promoting schemes of swearing or solemnizing oath, making promises that were binding or not binding based on what they swore upon, gold versus temple, and so on. Jesus says of these practices later, uh, whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it, verse 20. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. The point of invoking of witnesses when we solemnize a vow is that each and every time we do it under God. There is no making of promises or aspect of life that is neutral from His ultimate authority. We are to live all of life as uh, under and submitted to and answering to the Lord. And that's ultimately the point. But what the Pharisees had done is abused the Word of God. They were stealing concepts, twisting them in their deception, and trying and using that as a manipulative tool for others. The third major point, we'll expand on this this morning, which is uh, the case in point. The case in point of the abuse of the Word of God is in this record. And you might wonder why there's a few verses given to these unlawful oaths or vows. And I think it's because of the following. Jesus is documenting a number of abuses. First of all, idolatry. Swearing by anything less than God is idolatrous. In Matthew chapter 5, you'll remember under the, uh, in the Sermon of the Mount, in verse 33, Again you have heard it said, that it was said of those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, 
Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. These passages initially may be difficult for us to understand. But with a little bit more background of their culture, consider the following. Let heaven judge me, I will keep my promise. Uh, Let earth judge me, I will keep my promise. Let Jerusalem solemnize and watch over both of us that we may keep our vow. I swear by my own head and by my own life, I will keep this vow. Each time you make a vow in this context, you're invoking a solemn witness. And the implication is they have both the authority and the ability to hold you accountable should you break it. Ultimately, there is only one just witness, only one capable witness, ultimately speaking, under which we make our vows, and that is the Lord. We ought not to ascribe authority uh, that is due Him alone to anyone or anything, any concept less than Him. That is idolatrous. That was an abuse that the Pharisees uh, were guilty of in this passage we see it documented. The second abuse was conflation. That means to mix things up on purpose. They were exalting the shadow over the substance. Later in Colossians 2, 16 through 17, Paul speaks to those who are tempted to place more weight on the form of things than the essence revealed in Jesus Christ. They were passionate about keeping particular feasts on particular days and doing all these ceremonial uh, things absolutely accurately, but they had missed Christ. In a similar way, the Pharisees were diminishing the more important aspects of the temple while exalting the lesser ones. They said, in effect, that the gold was more important than the temple or the gift was more important by the altar, and Jesus goes all the way through it, and ultimately he says all of this is nothing if God doesn't sit upon His throne. And you have ascribed, you've convoluted things and exalted the form or the tradition over the essence and the substance, which is the fear of the Lord. That was the second abuse that Christ documents. The third one could be described as loopholes. And a helpful analogy I got from my study Bible is a little kid with his fingers crossed. Maybe this isn't culturally relevant as much anymore, but I remember uh, the, the rule was, you know, the unspoken house rules of making promises was, if you kept your fingers crossed behind your back, then the promise that you made wasn't binding. And said, so, huh, I'm going to hold you to it. <laughs> fingers crossed. And so now your friend can't hold you to your word. It was a loophole. And the, in that little illustration, it's obvious to see it is uh, disingenuous, it's lying, it's lack of integrity. The Pharisees invented these kind of loopholes out of whole cloth, missing the intent of the law. The intent was justice, mercy, and faithfulness, and they invented all kinds of convoluted stuff like Corbin to get out of your laws. You could basically say, I give the temple an IOU for all my money so I don't have to take care of my parents. Crossing the fingers behind the back, uh, to get to find to, to manufacture a loophole, not so that you don't have to be faithful to what God's word says. That was an abuse, and the Pharisees were guilty of uh, standing for these kinds of things. 
and endorsing these kinds of activities. And the final kind of abuse that was documented as represented by this uh, section on oaths and vows was exploitation. Just uh, quite simply a muddy, a grubbing racket. Notice in verse 11, or on verse 16, Woe to you blind, uh, blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple he is bound by his oath. And later, they, uh, the same kind of misorientation of importance uh, they demonstrate between the altar and the gift in 19. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes it sacred? So get this. The Pharisees, in order to extort people, it seems quite clear in context, were placing more importance on the gold and on the sacrifice than what the actual temple order represented. Why? They could talk people out of their money. They could encourage people to give. Do we see this kind of thing today? The emphasis on wealth instead of faithfulness to the Lord? Ascribing glory to gifts and gold to manipulate people into giving to the ministries that uh, people uh, manufacture ultimately as career ladders to advance themselves? You know, you don't have to scroll through many channels in the so-called Christian you know, television, and you can find many examples, I'm sure, within less than an hour of you know, popular national, international programming. Well, that's exploitation. It's a racket. It's the heart of the Pharisee. If they're missing the point and intent of sacrificial giving, it's not about the money. It's not about you. It's about the glory of Almighty God. The case is in point then. Uh, in this case in point, we have this documentation of abuses. This is what Jesus is getting at in this section. Now, a final point under this uh, example. Jesus, there, there's a term that was popularized by some as a helpful way to ask a very important biblical question, by what standard? If I remember right, uh, Greg Bonson has a book, something along, the, the, something along those li lines. By what standard? What ultimate authority? Now, if we follow Jesus' logic and his argument as a pattern of exemplary discernment, we can see that by what standard is, a good, is actually uh, underneath Jesus' line of questioning or Jesus' line of argument and reasoning. Listen again. He says, You blind fools, which is greater, the gold of the temple or the temple that has made the gold sacred? So here's the implicit question What is the gold worth if there was no temple to uh, put it in? If there was no reason for the gold, then the gold would be, would be worthless, okay? And then we continue to follow. And you say, if someone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if one swears by the gift on the altar, he is bound by his oath. Blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Again, what is a sacrifice without an altar? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Without the intent, without uh, of that in place, that uh, the whole meaning and the thrust behind the gospel, behind the giving of the gift or sacrifice, it totally loses its value. It's worthless. So what is the gift without the altar? And he goes on, verse 21, whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Again, follow the logic. What is the temple without him who dwells in it? 
You see what we're getting here, where we're going? And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God. What power and authority do the heavens represent if God's throne wasn't there? And by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. And there's your final uh, step in Jesus' line of reasoning. What is a throne unless one sits upon it? What is the message? Every single thing is qualified, justified, and binding and authoritative only when it is grounded on the authority of him who sits on the throne of God, Jesus Christ. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The standard of all ethics, the standard of all glory, the standard of all right living is Jesus Christ. There is nothing to appeal to. There is no legitimate authority standard, whether it's contrived by Pharisee, Sadducee, modern government, philosopher, vain intellectual thinking, or any number of reasonable or, or, or reasoning um, that paths that man take these days. It is all vanity unless it can be shown to be rooted in Christ and judged stuff. And judged such by his holy scriptures. Closing application this morning. What is all of this to move us toward? Let us fear the Lord, brothers and sisters. Because in everything we do, we call God himself to witness. We answer to him. Now these days, I, I, I can't resist but give this one application. In today's highly charged, you know, uh, political candidacy season. Um, some people are really enthralled with the idea of someone answering to no one, really being an outsider or a maverick or a fighter or this or that. And there's multiple people elbowing themselves to show the rest of our society that the buck stops here with me. And that attitude if it is not grounded in Christ, is a pharisaical attitude. Everyone, whether they're, and those who, share, who maintain any influence whatsoever, have to be most diligent to hold themselves accountable to these truths. What is qualified biblical leadership? You have some charge in leadership, so do I. The leaders of our country have more in particular areas. We must fear God not give or take a bribe, not pervert justice. Those are basics. We answer to him and we govern our affairs, order our lives in such a way that it shows, it demonstrates we answer to a higher authority. This is an application that is helpful for us in this section. Every time we act, we call God himself to witness. We answer to him. Nothing is virtuous if it is not grounded ultimately on the authority of God Almighty. So important these days, when people are making appeals to culture and misguided compassion and underprivileged groups and uh, you know, uh, di disparaging circumstances and uh, socioeconomic conditions and this and that to justify all kinds of behavior. This is the new minority that compassion demands. We must change our views on what sin is and so on. There's a thousand lobbyists out there on, uh, you know, if they could set up a K Street in heaven to convince uh, everyone else that God's authority has changed. 
But the message from our passage today is that there is nothing virtuous, nothing true, unless it is ultimately grounded on the authority of Almighty God. And perhaps the final point of application we could take this morning is let us never censor the gospel because in all of these errors, the only prescription to correct is Jesus Christ and the preaching of Him crucified and the call, the open door to the kingdom of God, repent and believe. Throw wide the door of the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters, in your own heart, repentance and faith. And throw it wide open to others by practicing and preaching repentance and faith in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Let us close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that though your word is sharp, that it is sharp for a reason. It corrects and cuts and divides and discerns exactly where we need it to. If there are areas in our understanding that might be shaped by your word delivered to us today, let us repent and align ourselves accordingly. I also pray that you would give us grace, Lord, to practice and preach what we have heard, that we may not be guilty of the woes, but instead, Lord Jesus, would humble ourselves and wish to see you exalted and preach the open door of the kingdom is through repentance and faith in the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ, our crucified, risen, and ascended Lord. And it is in his holy name we pray. Amen.